guys, you are dismissed to go on up to Kids Church. And thank you, Kids Church workers, as you head up. Man, there's a lot of kids going out. Look at that, you know? That's pretty awesome, I think. I think that's pretty cool. Hey, this morning, I've entitled this morning's sermon, Praying in Five Dimensions. Praying in Five Dimensions. When I was a kid in the uh, 60s and 70s, there was a pop band called The Fifth Dimension. You might have remembered The Fifth Dimension. And it's like, what does that mean, The Fifth Dimension? I mean, I've heard of dimensions before. You know, like when you watch the beginning of the Twilight Zone, it says you're entering into a dimension of sight and sound, realms, you know, something like that. But what is the fifth dimension? Well, it was first talked about in the 1920s. There were some German scientists that came up with a theory, and I'll just, I'll read you the theory instead of trying to, you know, just, it says that it's an attempt to unify the four fundamental forces in nature, strong nuclear forces, weak nuclear forces, gravity, and electromagnetism. It's a mathematical theory probably goes way over our heads, things we don't even really concern ourselves with or really even know about. But here's one thing I'm sure we all know about, because we're all human, and that is this, that sometimes we feel like we're being pulled in many, many different directions. We, we can probably agree on that. And if you're being pulled in many directions, then you need a multi-dimensional way to pray. And so this weekend, if you're, if you're new to New Life, we're on a 40-day campaign of spiritual renewal and growth, and it's called 40 Days of Prayer. We actually uh, came alongside of what they're doing at Saddleback Church and prayed about it, and, and so we've had some great responses, great um, testimonies in prayer, a lot of people involved in prayer, and for me what's exciting is that as a church comes together at the beginning of year together in prayer, we're just going to be opening uh, doors and roadways of what God is going to be doing in the upcoming year, and I'm, I'm extremely excited about that. And so before we begin to look, though, at this praying in five dimensions, I, I, want, I want to just kind of share a couple of things with you, uh, truths about this, fundamental basis of prayer, things I'm learning, things I want to share with you. So you may want to write this down. Um, God is a multidimensional God. God is a multidimensional God, and your fulfillment in prayer, your uh, your, your fruitfulness in prayer is going to be dependent not on how much you know about prayer, but how much you know about God. And by that, I don't mean you can answer all these deep theological questions, but the nature of God, your relationship with God. Because the prayer comes from that. And so the more you understand the Lord, the more fruitful, the more enjoyable your prayers are going to be. Again, it's not all about learning about prayer it's growing into deeper relationship with the lord and then the prayer flows from that and so so let's look at a couple of things about this multi-dimensional god that we have first of all we see this in creation i mean we all live in mariposa county we're here we get to live in a cool place you know i saw it this morning as i was sitting out on my backyard before i worked on my sermon just the, the brilliance of God in creation and the variety of God in creation. You look around and you see a multidimensional world, so there must have been a multidimensional creator. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, look at, have clearly, have been clearly seen in what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now, just prior to that, he says that men be, that, that, the, cre- that the creature, that the creature began worshiping the creature instead of the creator. And so we worship anything but the Lord. People might say, well, well, I've, I've, I've never read the Bible. What about people who have never read the Bible? And that's true, but you can learn a lot about God just by looking at nature. I was telling Tony that Peggy and I and Amanda just did a little hike the other day. We went up Old Inspiration Point, lived in the park all those years, never did, went up Old Inspiration Point. And that just by leaving the parking lot and heading up the trail, you see all these different views, all these different things of the valley and all these different trees and plants and things that we had never seen before. You learn a lot about the multi-dimensional character of God. He's diverse. He's complex. He's creative. He's powerful. He's organized. You can see it when there's thunder and lightning and earthquakes, high water. If you've ever been, spent any time in creation, if you go to the aquarium, go over to Monterey, all the diversity in, in in the animals. If you spend time, you can go out to places like Doug Kanarowski's and, and see all the different plants and the way those things are and, and God's creation. We understand that God is definitely multidimensional. He's diverse in his creation. And so we can learn a lot about God through nature. And so what the writer is saying is you can know about God through creation, that there is a God, and so you don't worship creation, you should worship the creator. I'll tell you this. This is just me. It takes a lot more, in my opinion, And if there's atheists in the room today, this is just where I'm coming from. For me personally, it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in a creative design, in in a God who created things. If, If I'm walking down the road and I see a rock laying there, okay, that might be an accident. If I'm walking down the road and I see a Rolex laying on the ground, I'm gonna go, that didn't just happen. It's gonna speak that there was someone who designed that and someone who created that. If if you take a can of alphabet soup. Someone's got to open the can. Someone's got to pour it in the pot. Someone's got to turn on the heat. And then if that soup begins to boil, it would be amazing. It would be, we would go, That's, that, that can't happen. If all of a sudden the alphabet started on their own over time forming words and sentences, and then this whole book was written in a pot of alphabet soup with no design. You can say, well, there was a big bang. Well, great. Who pulled the trigger? Who pulled the trigger? So in my humble opinion, the Rolex doesn't start ticking on its own. The alphabet soup has to find a way to be created, to get in a can, to have the heat turned on, to begin to boil, and it doesn't just turn itself into words and into phrases and into a book. So I I don't know. I don't have the faith to be an atheist. Have you ever seen a baby born? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? God's a God of complexity. In Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, it says, Can you fathom the limits and the bounds of the greatness and the power of God? The sky is no limit for God, but it lies beyond your reach. God knows the world of the dead, but you do not know it. God's greatness is broader than the earth and wider than the sea. So we know that God is a multidimensional God because he shows the complexity in what he created. And we know then that if, if creation itself is complex, that the creator has to be way more complex. Another thing is that we see Jesus in incarnation. In the incarnation, 
In other words, when God came to earth and became a human being, there is an incarnation, fully God, fully man. It, it says this in John chapter 1, that the Word became flesh, the thought of God, the reason of God, the logos of God. It says the Word became a human being and lived among us. We saw His glory. He was full of grace and truth. That's a whole other sermon on its side. Jesus Christ, Christ in you, hope of glory, full of grace and truth. That's just something to think about for a minute. The fact that God can be God and God can come to earth and be human means that he's multidimensional. Hebrews chapter 13 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you know anyone like that? We had dinner with an old friend we've known since 1985 the other day. She looks at, she looks at oh, you guys haven't changed. Yes, we have. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. A little paunchier, a little grayer, a little wrinklier, a little hitching to get along. Your paradigms change. In fact, many of you aren't even the same as you were last week. There's little changes that happen. So what is that passage saying? It's saying that Jesus Christ isn't bound by space or time. Why is that? Because he's God. Because he's multidimensional. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, and this is one of those scriptures you can use when you're trying to at least get some grasp of the Trinity, he says, grace and peace to you uh, from him who is and who was and who is to come. So Jesus is multidimensional. God the Father is multidimensional. But we really see the multidimensional move of God through the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus says this. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going. And that's the way it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying you cannot contain the Holy Spirit. You cannot figure out the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moves in dimensions and comes and goes as He pleases and as He chooses. But He's not blocked by anything. He's saying that the Holy Spirit is multidimensional. In Job chapter 9, 10 and 11, talking about the Holy Spirit, He says, He does wonders that cannot be understood. He does so many miracles, they cannot be counted. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When, when Dan shares with you, and Dave, and Chris, and Brian, and a little bit, what happened in Oaxaca, some of the miracles that happened through prayer were amazing. But it was the Holy Spirit doing those miracles. They said they cannot be counted. When he passes me, I can't see him. And when he goes by me, I don't recognize him. So the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are multidimensional because God is multidimensional, so the first thing is, God's multidimensional. Number two, because God is multidimensional, I am never alone. You are never alone. You are never, never alone. God is in your past. He's in the present. He's in the future. He's around you. He's above you. He's in you. He's in your world. He's in my world. And that's because he's multidimensional. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Psalm 139. If you ever just want to feel good and get some perspective read the whole thing but in that david says this in 139 7 through 12 he says where could i go to escape from you where could i ever get away from your presence if i were to go up to heaven you'd be there if i lay in the world of the dead you'd be there if i flew way beyond the east and lived in the furthest place to the west you'd be there too to lead me you'd be there too to help me 
I could ask the darkness to hide me, but even darkness isn't dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Let me give you a little tip. Don't play hide-and-seek with God. He'll always win. He's everywhere. There's no place that you've been. There is no place that you are going that God hasn't been there. So you will never go alone into your future. He was there in your past, and he is totally here in your present. What does that have to do with prayer? Because every dimension that you will be in, everything you face, every place where you will be, every challenge, every great opportunity, God is there. God is already there. All right, so those were some kind of fundamentals. Now let's, let's look at some ways of praying in this whole you know, fifth dimension thing. Let's, let's let it bring some sense. And, and so number one, when I pray, and I did a little bit this morning, and I'm learning this. I'm learning this, and I'm trying to do this. Now, what I give you this morning, don't just use as a formula and feel locked into it. But these are some good tips in how to pray multidimensionally. Number one, when I pray, I look backwards to the cross. First thing, in a very practical way. Before I bring the pro- my problems to God, before I bring my challenges of the day to God, I look back to the love of God on the cross. It fills me with gratitude, fills me with thanksgiving, it fills me with hope. It reminds me of three things, and you may want to write these down. When I look back to the cross in prayer, it reminds me of this, how deeply God loves me. How deeply God loves me. How costly, how costly evil and sin is. And how completely I'm forgiven. That's a good way to start your prayers. How much God loves you, even though your sins make you a mess, you're completely forgiven. So you look back to the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life. God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life. He paid for you, look at, with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Listen, do you know how much something is worth? It's whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. You can invest in anything you want. You name it. And it might be worth it this day, but this day it's worth this or this because that's how, what people are willing to pay for. You can blue book a car. Kelly, blue book a car. Blue book a car. It says this, but then if you look at cars around you, price is different. Why is that? People are willing to pay. People are willing to pay. Let me ask you this. How much are you worth? How much are, are you worth? If you want to know that, look to the cross. Look to the cross. The Son of God became a son of man so that the sons and daughters of man could be sons and daughters of God. He did what we could not do for ourselves. That shows you how much you're worth. So, I'm starting to do this. I would encourage you to try it. When I start to pray now in my prayers, I'm trying to look back and focus on the cross a little bit. I'm trying to look back at the cross. Think about this right now, that all the sins that you have committed are in the past, and the cross is there. But also think about this, that all of the sins, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the sins you will commit today and the sins you will commit in your future, the cross is there, and you've been forgiven. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. All right, let's look at dimension number two. 
When we, so dimension number one, when I pray, I look back to the cross. Dimension number two is this. I look upward into my Father's loving face. I start by thinking about the cross, and then I turn from the past and backward up into the face of God. The first thing that you, you, you want to know about this, when, when Jesus taught people to pray, they said, how do you pray? Teach us how to pray. Many of us think God might be like a dictator or he's, 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 he's waiting to, he's just this, I'm trying to, my, my words aren't coming right now. He's, he's like a dictator or a supervisor or a coach or something he's not. When, when they said, Lord, teach us how to pray, he said, here's how you should pray, our Father. Do you know that you can look into the Old Testament and now I'm going to say there's nowhere. There might be a couple of times that I've missed. Nowhere do you hear people calling God Father and praying to God as their Father. Definitely not calling and praying to God as Father. There was Lord, the Lord our provider, the Lord our healer, all these things, which are great characteristics of God our Father, who, who, but Jesus said, call him Father. In fact, God wants you to call him Father. You may want to try this in the upcoming week. If you don't already do it, just, just try every, starting every prayer with Father. Father. And why is that? Because that's, that's, that's how he wants you to call him. Now, for some of us, we've had fathers who weren't all that great. Some of you have had evil fathers. Literally, they were bad. Some of you have had fathers that were inconsistent, like my dad, as the saying goes. You didn't know if you were going to get slugged or hugged. Some of you just had human fathers. They made big mistakes. And so if you go into just probably any Christian parenting curriculum, you will go through. They will say, fathers, be really careful how you raise your kids because the, the image of, of God as the father is what your kids are going to see and use the father. And while that's true, let me tell you this. Your father on earth is not your father in heaven. Okay, I don't care how good they were. Or how bad they were, they're not your, your earthly father is not your heavenly father. And your heavenly father is not your earthly father. Your heavenly father is consistent, considerate. He's caring. He's close. He's capable. He's good. And so Jesus says, when you pray, start every prayer with our father. The way you see God, the way you see God in your life is going to control the way, the way you pray, the way you act, the way you look. Your image of God. And so it's going to determine if your prayers are fruitful, are they fulfilling. And so Jesus says, pray our Father. It'll radically change your life because what you call somebody, how you feel about somebody, is then how you approach them. If people come up to me and say, Reverend Von Rader or Chaplain Von Rader or something like that, I know that the conversation is going to be a little more formal. But if they come up to me and go, hey, chap, or pastor, or hey, Eric, that, how about that? That's my name. Hey, Eric, then I know it's going to be a little more one-on-one, -on -one, be a little more intimate. It's not going to be so rigid and restricted and, and, you know, all of this. So sometimes what happens is when we go to God, we act like we're applying for a loan or we're taking a lie detector test or we're speaking to an FBI agent and God wants us to call him father again now this one was hard for me for some of you it's easy but even more than father he wants us to call him papa he wants us to call him daddy it says this in romans chapter 8 one of the greatest passages in scripture in my opinion 
talking about prayer, he says, you should not act like cowering, fearful slaves since God's Spirit has adopted you as children into God's family. By His Spirit, we simply cry out, Abba, Father. And God's Spirit affirms that we really are His children. And since we are now God's children, we're also heirs with Christ, and we will share both in His sufferings and His glory. This passage is, the whole Romans 8 is packed. I'm going to tell you that. You can spend a whole year in Romans 8. I'm not kidding. But, but look at a few things in these verses. First of all, I'm no longer a slave of fear. We don't need to act like slaves to fear. It's easy for me to tell what people think about God as I listen to their prayers. And I'm not judge, like being judgmental, but you can tell. Yeah, and I, that was one of the things that for me, when I became a Christian and started hanging around with Christians, was for me, the legalistic background, I came very strict, very formal, very rigid, very this. And then I got around people who've been around Jesus. And I'm listening to how they pray to him as a friend, as a father, as someone they really knew. Do they have a relationship? I can tell. Do they have a relationship? There's a few things that are important about prayer that we may want to just write down or consider. First of all is God wants our prayers. He wants your prayers to be personal. The daddy thing in here, very personal. Abba, it's the word for daddy. Um, kind of, uh, Papa. <laughs> My daughter, 27 years old, calls me daddy. My son is getting married to a beautiful woman. She's got a beautiful son, little Brent, two years old. When he first came to me, they go, what, do you, what, do you, what are you going to want him to call you? Well, I didn't know yet. They weren't married. I wasn't sure. I hadn't got close to Brent. I'm too young to be a grandpa. I, don't, I'm not, I got too many mountains to climb and all that. But then as I got to know, so my first response, get this. We were all sitting around the table just messing around. You go, well, what do you want him to call you? I said, he can call me Pastor Eric. Just joking with him and them. But now, is, now you, know what, you know what he calls me? He calls me Papa. Papa. It's very endearing. I see him. I grab him. He sees me. We laugh. It's, it's intimate. And God wants you to call him Papa. Uh, our prayers should be childlike, unpretentious, just simple prayers. Look at Jesus said this. He said you got to come to God. And he didn't just say as a child. Check it out. He said, you come to God as a little child. Certainly we're to grow and mature, but it's a heart set. It's a mindset. It's a dependency. He called his disciples, little children. So we're honest, unpretentious. Let me ask you this. Is a toddler really worried about making a good impression? When you settle this issue that God is your father, and if you can get to a place where he's your daddy or he's your papa, it sets the tone for how you begin talking to God because it's now based on your understanding of God and who he really Remember, I said, this isn't 40 days of learning how to pray. This is a spiritual renew. Because when I began opening myself to, to understand more of God's love and character for me, then that's how my prayers flow. Okay. So, number two, they don't, we not only want them to be personal, but they need to be passionate. It says, when we pray, we cry out, Abba, Father. So it's an attitude of the heart, not emotionalism, okay? It's not like, well, now I'm going to pray and i got to scream, i got to cry. But it's an attitude of the heart. We simply cry out. Children cry a lot. And they don't care who's around. They cry out. And I guess the question is, they're unpretentious. And are we that way in prayer? Are we more concerned when we pray about what people around us think? Are we more concerned even when we're alone and we pray to God about what God thinks about 
it, but we need to be personal and passionate, desperate in our prayers. God, I need you. Daddy, help me. I'm being tempted like nothing else. I need your help. I'm going under. I've got bills to pay, decisions to make. Do I marry this person? I need your help. And it's okay in your prayer. And now, I'm, again, I'm not saying not to work yourself up into some frenzy, but if you're emotional in prayer, that's okay because God's an emotional God. Where do you think you got emotions from? God gets angry. God gets frustrated. God laughs. God gets happy. Now, the third thing is that there needs to be a partnership with God. The Bible says God wants my prayers to be a partnership. Look at Romans 8.26. I, I shared this with you a few weeks ago. Look at 8.26. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We often don't even know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself speaks to God for us, even begs God on our behalf with deep groanings and feelings that, cannot, that words cannot express. The Holy Spirit is passionate about you. The Holy Spirit is passionate about you. What does that mean? What does that mean in prayer? It means that your loving Heavenly Father understands that you often don't know how to pray. Your loving Heavenly Father understands that you often don't know what to say. Your loving Heavenly Father understands that you don't even know how to say it. You can't put it into words. A parent understands that. Again, I'll go back. I mean, any of you are a parent, but I, again, I'll go back to little Brent. And he's trying to say something. He's trying to get it out. And we're like going, use your words. And he can't use his words. But we know what he wants, and we know what the answer is, and that's how it is with God. He knows it. He helps it when you can't even say it or articulate, and God is not upset at you today. And he's not upset when you go to him and you say, God, I don't get it, I don't understand. The Bible says that God joins you and he talks to himself when you talk to him. That sounds a little weird. You mean God prays to himself? Well, let me ask you this. Have you never talked to yourself? You probably do it all the time. How many times when somebody is talking to you, you're in your head talking to yourself about them? When, God, when, when, when I talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to himself about me, it's called self-talk. And God talks to himself about you. I'll tell you this, sometimes... You might be standing there looking me right in the eye on a Sunday and you're talking to me and I'm looking right back at you and I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to myself about you and what's going on in your life and I'm talking to God about you. So if I can do that, you think that's a really hard thing for God to do? Probably not. So the third dimension, number one, you know, we look back at the cross. Number two, we look up into the, into the Father. Number three, I look inward to the Jesus Christ who's living in me. Christ in you, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Did you understand, do you know this, that when you said yes to Jesus, you stepped across the line and he put his life in you through his spirit? In fact, the Bible in Romans 8 says that we have the spirit of Christ living in us. And so because that's true, Jesus can be in heaven where he is. He is, he's the right hand of God. He can be everywhere, but he chooses to live inside of me. That's the multidimensional aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so since I know that I'm unconditionally accepted by my Father, it gives me the freedom and the courage and the honesty to face up to my faults. And that's the third part of prayer. I've gone from looking back into the cross to looking up to the Father to looking inside of me. 
Christ, I know you're in me. Christ, I know you love me. Christ, I know you accept me. But Christ, there are things inside of me, secret sins. There's compulsions. There's fears. There's hurtful memories. There's resentful thoughts. There's unforgiveness. There's bitterness. There's yada, 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 yada. God, there's stuff in me that I don't even know is in there. There's stuff in me that's in there, and I don't even know what to do with it. I remember one time I told Peggy, I said, Peggy, I feel like my life is like our shed, like all this stuff has just been thrown out of it, and I don't know what to do with any of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourself. This is self-examination. Examine yourself to see if your faith is real and growing. Test yourself. Remember that Jesus is living in you unless you failed your test. In other words, you've never asked him into your life. Here's a, here's a, here's a fact. I can't, and you can personalize this. You, I'll say you can't. <laughs> Get any better until you face what needs to be challenged and changed in your life. I can't get any better until I face what needs to be challenged, which we hate. And, and, and let me just take a side note here. Forgive me if I offend you, but Christians to me love to talk about this but hate doing it. We talk about accountability until we have to be accountable. We talk about speaking to my life until you speak into someone's life. We talk about following God until we have to follow God. Just a thought. I can't get any better until I face what needs to be challenged and changed. That's true for any sports team. It's true for any marriage. It's true for any corporation to make the, the profits. It's true in the military. And I'm going to tell you, because I've been very open with you about this, when I started my path to some inner healing and started to see a counselor in September, which, by the way, I got one more, and they said I'm doing pretty good. I can, I can not do that. But I will tell you, thank you, Jesus, right? Amen. But I, I, I will tell you this. This is the truth. Before I can get better, I have got to admit what's bitter, what's bad. And the truth will set you free. The first thing my counselor told me on the very first day, Eric, in over 30 years of being a Christian psychologist, I can tell you this, the Lord loves to bring truth. But guys, truth can make you pretty miserable for a while. Because you've got to face the stuff you did and the stuff that has happened to you. You've got to see it for what it is. You've got to cry about it, get angry about it. You've got to go through the depression. And in it, God is right there with you. Problem is, we don't want to face it. I can't grow until I'm honest. There is no change without trust, and there is no trust without truth. And so I have to start with looking into the face of my loving Father, knowing that he accepts me. And then in the third dimension, I look to Jesus Christ living in me, and I ask him to do some house cleaning in my life. He's good at that. Do you remember when he went into the temple with the whip? Well, listen, folks, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs chapter 28, 13 says, if you try to hide your sins, you will never succeed. But if you humbly confess and reject them, you will receive mercy. The Living Bible says you'll get another chance. This isn't always true, but many times, folks, the cover-up is worse than the sin. But if you confess it and reject it, you will receive mercy. You will get another chance. God already knows what you need to work on. God already knows what's going on 
He knows the stuff, and he loves you anyway. But when, okay, now, when you get honest with God, it will take you to a new level of intimacy. 35 years with my wife. I'm going on 35 years with Peggy. Do you know I study intimacy? Peggy, we've been together going on 35 years. How can I be more intimate? I'm not talking, a lot of times when you think intimacy, it goes right to sex. I'm not talking sex. How do I get to your heart? How do we become more intimate? I become a student of my wife. I ask her. I go online. I read things. One of the things I want for the 40 days, it, you know, when, it's, when I ask you guys, what do you want in the next 40 days? I'm going to tell you, one of the things I want in my life is the very same thing. I want with my wife. I want with Jesus. And you know what? I'll even go on a limb and say I want with you, and that's greater intimacy. Greater intimacy in my life. But you have to learn to be intimate with God. And once you can get the courage to be intimate with God, you will have the courage to get intimate in other relationships. As I said, intimacy is not defined as sex. Intimacy, get this, is the mingling of souls. Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and unashamed. No pretense, no mask, no faking it, no imagery, none of that stuff. And so I've got to be honest with God but before I can be honest with God, I've got to be honest with myself. Be true to thine self. And I go, God, this is an area that we need to work on. And when you start being honest with God, it takes you to a whole new level of intimacy. And whether you know it or not, I won't use the word all, but I would say most people crave intimacy. And the only way you're going to get intimate with God is to be willing to open up and invite God into this. There's levels of intimacy. There's the levels of intimacy that you can share like, boy, this really frustrates me. This really bugs me. Uh, you could do that in your small group. There's a deeper level of intimacy that says, I don't like this about myself. And I'm going to tell you, the real level of intimacy comes when you go through the door of conflict. When you act, you, here's the deal. You get more than one person in a room and you're going to have conflict. But when we go through it as Christ prescribed with his spirit in us, you know what? That's when relationships begin to get strong. That's when intimacy begins to happen. But I'm telling you what, this is the door of conflict, and you can go through it, but my experience is most people do this. It's a lot easier to not address conflict. Here's how you spell intimacy. I can't take credit for this. So people have come up and said, gee, that's a great thing. I can't take credit for this. This is something Warren said, but here it is. It's three words. If you want how to spell intimacy, here it is. Into me see. Into me see. Intimacy. When you invite somebody into your life and you say warts and all, failures and all, hurts, habits, and hang-ups and all, all the stuff, the good, the bad, the ugly, this is what you see. That's when you become intimate. I'm going to tell you something my wife did. We had a very short engagement. I already told you a story. I'm not going to go. Very short. We had a sh very short courtship. And so one day, right after we had become serious, we were outside of Los Angeles at this place called Travel Town near Griffith Park. Bunch of trains. You can go through it. And I was too poor to pay attention. And Peggy had a little bit of money. She bought a hot dog and she bought a Coke. And we wandered through the trains all afternoon and we just talked. And do you know she bared her soul? I grew up fatherless. Started getting molested at age five. Here's how many partners I've had before you. 
here's the failures in my life. Here's the stuff I'm afraid of. Here's what I don't like. She bared her soul. I, I hardly knew her. And then, before we got married, one day she says, I want you to see me without my makeup on. Because Peggy wore a lot of makeup. And there she was, scrubbed clean, no makeup on. I saw a different person. Loved her. See, that's what we do. We bear our soul. We take the mask off. We get close to people. And I'm going to tell you, most people won't do what I just explained to you. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't happen. But you might say, I want to. So where do you start? If this is the third dimension, I pray and I ask God for helping me when I look in, you might start with the fruit of God's spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. And you might even read before that when it talks about the works of the flesh because that also helps you about things of how I can get intimate with God. But in Galatians chapter 5, it says this, there are nine fruits of the Spirit. They're, they're love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And I would say, God, I would like some of those things in my life. Can you please show me the things in my life that are getting in the way of this? Can you please help me with this? You know what, Jesus? I'd like to be a little more joyful today. I'd like to be a little more patient today. And please don't do be one of the, don't ever ask God for patience. What does that say about your view of God's character? If he's the good God, the loving Father, come on now. So anyway, let's move on. I look back at the cross. I look upward into the face of the Father. I look at Christ Jesus in me. And the fourth thing is I look around and I ask the Holy Spirit to use me. I look around and I ask the Holy Spirit to use me. You look around and you say, Holy Spirit, where will you use me today? Show me what you're seeing. Help me to get on board with what you're doing. Instead of criticizing, complaining, judging, whining, blogging, getting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, how about saying, Holy Spirit, show me either what's wrong in the world around me or what's going good, that's called appreciative inquiry, and help me to get on board with that. Help me to jump in and be a part of what, what's going on. And I was talking to Lauren DeBerkey about this a couple days ago because he's a pastor in Fresno, and he says, Eric, are you going to talk about what are you doing, Holy Spirit, in the community? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, is it the community of faith or the community in Mariposa? And I said, yes. Yes. You know, the Bible talks about that. Now, it, there's an emphasis on the community of faith. It says be good to everyone, be kind to everyone, especially those in the community of faith. It was the community of faith in Acts chapter 2 that people saw and drew them. But what's God doing in our church and what's God doing in the community and how do I get used? It's the purpose-driven life. I'm going to tell you this. I did a study of people who lived to be over 100. I got a great uncle. He's 104 years old. One of the things that people that live to be over 100 all have in common for, for most of them. There's that word all. Many people have in common is this. They have a purpose. They have a purpose for getting up in the morning. And I'm going to tell you this. When your purpose is to do what the Holy Spirit has gifted and equipped you and called you to do, there's nothing better than that when you're walking in the will of God. And so I'm going to tell you this. You say, God, use me. Holy Spirit, what's going on around me? The world's waiting for your contribution. You were made for more. And you, you, you go into that fulfillment through prayer. God, use me. That's my prayer here at New Life, that you will come into a place of potential Look around, find a need, have an interest or ability. This should be the place where you discover, develop, and deploy your gift and your calling and you realize your potential. And let me tell you this. So you, you look back to the cross, upwards to the Father, inward for examination. Christ, use me. 
today, stop trying to wait until you can do something great or excellent. I can, you know, here's the thing. This is what Mother Teresa said. Just do normal things with a great amount of love and God will bless that. We keep waiting and waiting until everything is right, until we have this, until we have that, until this, until that. Got to be this or I'm not going to do it. Hey, get in and do something for God. Little kid gives you a finger painting. It's not that good, but you sure love it, don't you? All right. What makes what you're doing significant is that you're doing out of love and you're doing it for the Lord. That's what makes your work significant. I have stuff that the kids made when they were real little. It's not, what is it worth? It's worth everything to me. I couldn't get a dime for it if I tried to sell it. So it means everything to me. All right, so that's the fourth dimension. It's the world's waiting for your contribution. And the best launch pad is the church family. I'm going to tell you, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think it's verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. Ephesians you know, 2.10, Danny preached on this. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared for you. And I am challenging Dan, and I am challenging Debbie, and you can ask them. You can ask them. And I'm challenging myself. What do we do to make new life a place where people can, can excel and grow in their gifts and their calling and the potential that God has for them? What have we done that we have to stop doing that kind of ma- make us a staff-dependent church instead of a church that where the staff supports what God is doing in your life and we can see you move into the potential that God has for you. Finally, let's look at the fifth dimension, and I'm going to move through this because we still want to celebrate communion together. Uh, I look forward to my future in faith. Like I said this morning, for some of you, you wake up in the morning, and before you've even fully opened your eyes, you're like, oh, no, or uh uh-oh, or you're confused, or you're angry, you're upset, you're you're full of fear, but you look forward into your future in faith, in prayer, I look back, I look up, I look within, I look around, and then I look into the future. And, and it's time to talk about with God about your schedule for today, his agenda for today, five years, 10 years, 20 years. I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, and they said, you know, it used to be easy to have a five-year plan, a 20-year plan. You can't even do that anymore because the world is just so changing. It's changing so quickly, and so we really need to be close to the Lord. And I love to hear it when my kids share with me their dreams. And I like to hear it when I talk to young people and I say, tell me what's going on in your life. And I'm going to say this to some of you young guys that might be in here. When we ask you that, we're not trying to, I'm, when I, I'll speak for myself. When I ask you, what are you going to do with your life? Where are you going? I'm not putting the pressure on you. You know, a lot of young people feel so much pressure when they're asked, what are you going to do with your life? I don't know, I don't know. I'm just wondering, what's God doing? I'm really interested. God wants to hear your plans, your thoughts, your dreams, your ideas. And you can go to him and you say, Daddy, can you help me prioritize? Can you help me understand what's important? Can you show me how to make the right decisions? Help me. Help me to have the energy. Help me to know what to say. Father, help me to have a tough skin and a tender heart. And check this one out. Father, help me to be tender without surrender. Help me to be tender without compromise, God. What God wired you for and made you for, he is there to see success in your life because God doesn't, God is faithful. He doesn't sponsor flops. Philippians 1.6, my son's life verse. I am confident of this, that God who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll be faithful. It's five-dimensional praying. And as we go to communion this morning, it's interesting 
how God gave us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to share with you as we prep for this how, how these five dimensions can be seen in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist. But, but he gave us these things. The, the, the juice and the bread is the symbol of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. And then Jesus said, do this to remember me. Are you starting to see a pattern of things there? And in 1 Corinthians 11, communion teaches us five, or five very important rules. Number one, he says that in communion, we're reminded to check our hearts. We're reminded to examine ourselves. And as I say this all the time, when you come to communion, not to examine yourself to see how worthy you are based upon yourself to come because you're never going to be there. But we are called to examine, to check our hearts. Look at this. Here's what it says. If anyone eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. You should examine yourself. That's pretty hardcore. It says, for if you eat the bread or drink from the cup without recognizing, in other words, committing to the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. That's pretty strong. That's pretty strong. He says, that's why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you even died. He says, but if we examine and judge ourselves. Now, I hear this all the time. That word for judge is you've got to declare if something's right or wrong. I hear, well, Christians are so judgmental. Well, okay. And the word doesn't mean you condemn. But you have to examine something and say, this is wrong in my life. Like when I was into pornography, my wife looks at me and says, Eric, there's no fear of the Lord in your eyes. You have to examine, you have to judge. And then he says, if we examine and judge ourselves, we are not going to be judged by God. In other words, we, 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 we can go ahead and, and, and do something about this. Now here's the good news, as I said just a little bit ago. It says that um, we are not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And here's the truth, none of us are worthy of the Lord's Supper. Right? It's by God's grace. It's a response to grace. But he's saying it's only for those who've accepted the gift of Christ's salvation. And so if you haven't accepted the gift of Christ's salvation today when we receive the Lord's Supper, it's probably better for you to not receive it. Wait until you can make the decision thoughtfully and for sure, yeah, I'm going I'm to follow Christ. Examine and judge yourselves. Psalm 139 says this, verses 23 and 24. Again, great psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of understanding. Of everlasting, sorry. There's some things in here. You may even want to memorize it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Into me see. Into me see. So communion, first of all, reminds us to check our hearts. One of the great truths we get from communion is, is that no one loves me more. No one loves me more than our Heavenly Father. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, it says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Pretty important to Christ. So here's a couple questions you may want to write down. If you're taking notes this morning, write them down. Let God ask the Lord to show you these things. You might already know them, but in the upcoming week, you might say, Lord, help me with these questions. Here it is. Here's, here's a question. 
When am I most likely to forget how much my Heavenly Father loves me? When am I most likely to forget my Heavenly Father loves me? And number two, what sin or sins do I habitually fall into when I forget God's love for me? What sin or sins do I habitually fall into when I forget God's love for me? The second great truth of communion is this. We belong to each other in God's family. In Corinth, there were some big problems going on in the church when they went to celebrate communion. They were getting drunk. Some were starting, and they were eating on their own. And, and when Paul starts writing this, he says, here's the deal. Here's a, a few problems. Number one is you've got members in your church with unresolved conflict, and you're not right with each other. And the second problem is you're acting like the Lord's Supper is just for individuals. Now, I know some of you have a, a little place at your house, and you, you take communion on your own every day. I know people do that, and that's great, and I'm not telling you to stop, but I will tell you this. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to take communion on your own. It's meant, it might be something you do as an individual act, but you do it in the context of community. Because there is one bread, we who are, make, we make up one body. Why do you think it's called communion? Okay, so as much as it's great that you're, you're on your own, you're taking communion, I'm not telling you to stop that. I'm just saying that in Scripture, the way we're instructed to do it is in the context of community, that we belong to the body of Christ. There's a third problem in Corinth, and that's that they weren't aware to the needs of people in their church family. In 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 20 and 21, it says, I hear there are many divisions among you when you meet as a church. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, because as you eat it, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One member goes hungry, while the other gets drunk. And I want you to notice this. It says, when you meet as a church. Think about that for a minute. You can't have church without meeting. We can say, well, I'm the church wherever I go. Well, that may be true, and you're out doing something individually as the body of Christ. But Christians everywhere, from the, from the beginning of the church, loved to meet together. They met in the catacombs. They met in homes. Our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries would, would, would die to get to meet together like we are. It's the, we're out there trying to do this on our own, so I don't meet. I don't go to church. Well, when do you come together? When do you serve one another? We are the body of Christ. So here's some questions you might want to ask. What issue or issues have I made more important than being in harmony and unity with my brothers and sisters in God's family? What issue or issues have I made more important than being in harmony and unity with my brothers and sisters? What issues become more important? It says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. So, dear brothers and sisters, when you gather at the Lord's table, wait for each other. There's a larger principle there that the one place in the whole world that church should be that place where we put the needs and the interests of others before ourselves. Here's some questions. Can I give any example where I put the needs of my brothers and sisters in my church family ahead of my own? Can I give any example? Lloyd talks about it. It's the ministry of inconvenience. Do you know anybody in the church in need? And if you don't, go talk to Dan. Yeah, you can talk to me too. The third great truth is this, that the Lord's Supper teaches me that God loves me completely, that we belong to one another in God's family, that Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in me. 
Now, he's talking symbolically here, and what Jesus is about to say turned many disciples away, and in fact, in Rome, the Christians even got the reputation of being cannibals because of this statement, but he's talking about doing it in remembrance and symbolically. But look what it says in John 6. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me and I live in them. The living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. How about this? What happens when I forget this fact? What happens when I forget the fact that Jesus Christ lives in me? Number four, the big truth of, of, of these five dimensions, this life is not the end of the story. This life is not the end of the story. Again, in John 6, Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But those who do eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. This is not the end of the story. Let me ask you, you could ask yourself, so how am I using my time? Am I using my money as if it's all that matters in this life? Am I investing anything in the next life where I'm actually going to be spending eternity? What would change in my life if I kept reminding myself to ask, how long is this life going to ask, last? And finally, the fifth thing we get from the Lord's Supper is this, is that Jesus is coming back one day to judge and to reward in 1 Corinthians 11 again, 26, it says, Every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a past look, a present look, and a forward look in communion. It's multidimensional. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to come on up now, and I would like to invite, I think it's the Hobbies and the Hazes, the servers, our communion servers to come on up, if you would right now. Prayer teams, you can also uh, go ahead and kind of place yourself around the building. We're going to receive communion together as a church family in a moment. And what we'll do is when we receive it, starting from the back of the sanctuary, uh, you can go ahead and come down the aisles to the front and then go out along the aisles on the ends of the building. Um, let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, now we come to you and we recognize that as we take the Lord's table together, we remind ourselves, God, of the truth that you died for us and it shows how much you love us, that we belong to each other in God's family, that the Holy Spirit of Jesus lives inside of us, and that this life is not the end of the story and that one day, Jesus, you are coming back, and when you do, you will judge and you will reward and if you've never opened your life to Jesus Christ, he loves you so much it hurts, I can tell you that. And he paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. Would you accept that right now? Would you say, Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all, but as much as I know, I surrender my life to you. Can you just say that in your heart? Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all, but as much as I know, I surrender my life to you. I want to know the purpose you made me for. I want to live the kind of life you made possible. I want my past to be forgiven, and I ask you to give me purpose for living, and I ask you to accept me into a home in heaven. I do this knowing that I have nothing to offer and that I throw myself on your grace. And as I come to the table now, I look back at the grand love of Christ Jesus on the cross, how great you love me, 
how completely unforgiven and how horrible and evil and costly sin is, I, I look up into the eyes of a loving father who says, call me daddy. That's who I am to you. I look into the Christ in me, the hope of glory, and I say, there's that stuff, God. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to deny it. I'm asking you, God, to help me take that from me. I look around, Lord. I look around in my church family. I look around in my community, and I say, Holy Spirit, how will you use me today? Holy Spirit, please use me today. And I face the future, not with fear, but with faith, knowing that it is well because you're good. We come to communion now, Lord. Open our hearts as the disciples on the road to Emmaus said when they took the breaking of the bread, they said, our eyes were opened and did not our hearts burn. Open our eyes today, Lord. Give us heartburn. Give us heartburn for you.